The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. It's not like I was a totally different writer on that fourth book. It's just that some things hit, some things don't. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of just one person really noticing a book and being loud about it. And that gets everyone else to notice it. It gets it read. Not everything gets read for every prize, you know? So um, I, I will say when I meet an author who was really successful out of the gates with their first novel, prizes, sales, whatever, they might be a really nice person, but the thing I'm always thinking is you will ne- you can you can say you understand, but you'll never understand how much of this was luck. And for me, because you know that was my fourth book where that happened, and I absolutely know how much of it is luck. And welcome back to the Writer Files. I am your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning author Rebecca Mackay spoke with me about her love of the short story, True Crime Industrial Complex, and her latest literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. I have some questions for you. Rebecca Mackay's last novel, The Great Believers, was a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalist, won a slew of awards, and was one of New York Times' 10 best books of 2018. Her latest novel is I Have Some Questions for You, named a most anticipated book of 2023 by Time, the Seattle Times, Good Housekeeping, Today, Crime Reads, NPR, and many others. Described by the San Francisco Chronicle as part true crime page turner, part campus coming of age, the New York Times book review as a spellbinding work, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jennifer Egan called the book part boarding school drama, part forensic whodunit. I have some questions for you. Is a true literary mystery haunting and hard to put down? Rebecca's a 2022 Guggenheim Fellow on the MFA faculties of the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe and Northwestern University, and is artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. Her work's been translated into 20 languages, and her short fiction has been anthologized in the Pushcart Prize 2017, the Best American Short Stories 2008 through 2011, and many others. Stay tuned until the end of the show for a preview of the audiobook, excerpted courtesy Penguin Random House Audio from I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay, read by Julia Whelan and J.D. Jackson. In this file, Rebecca and I discussed why she chose to become an educator early on in her career, the importance of 15 years of writing and publishing short stories, how luck and maturity played a role in her career as a novelist, most underutilized tool in fiction, her zen koan for fellow writers, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. 
And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by the award-winning and lauded author Rebecca Mackay is joining us today. I'm sure that you are keeping very busy as you're most likely out out and about on tour. Uh, how are you feeling right now? I'm good. Actually, I'm home for the moment because I just, I, I was out and about this week. I did my Chicago launch on Saturday, doing my virtual event tonight. And then tomorrow I leave for 18 days on the road. So that'll be interesting. Oh my, oh my. Um, yeah. So I know that you're just probably a little bit uh, exhausted and overwhelmed, but it seems like the reception has been incredible. The reviews and the blurbs and just uh, a wall of blurbs. Uh, really cool to see. Yeah. Congrats on the reception of the latest. Um, what What's the vibe over there in addition to, um, yeah, just kind of gearing up for the next? I mean, everyone's really happy. Uh, um, I it's, it's funny. I like, I, I've told them this, my, you know, my, publicists, my editors, like they're going to act happy no matter what, but my agent is my emotional barometer because if she's happy, <laughs> it really uh-huh. means things are going well. And if she, then she'll get grumpy if they're, and she's, she's really happy. So that means, that means I'm allowed to be too. Awesome. She's your emotional support barometer. <laughs> yeah. Just like the bellwether, right? Like, you know, and like, are, the, is, are things really going well? Are they, you know, and she, uh, she doesn't hide it. So yeah, we're very happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congrats on the latest. Um, of course I want to talk all about it and get into, um, I have some questions, but, um, as we do with so many authors, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about, um, how you got here and just kind of some cliff's notes on your superhero origins as an author. Um, <laughs> as I understand it, you like back in the day were a Montessori teacher. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I was writing that whole time too, to be clear. Yeah. It wasn't like I suddenly decided to be a writer, but yeah, I taught Montessori elementary for 12 years. Interesting. So talk about your love of uh, the short story and how you came to become a novelist and, of course, um, an award-winning and and often anthologized short story writer. Yeah, I would love to talk about short stories because you don't get asked that often. Right after college, I did this kind of Montessori training and and then taught. It's a really full throttle job, but part of the reason I took it, and and besides the fact that I loved it, was, um, you know, summer's free vacations. I didn't have kids yet. So summer vacation was really by time and Montessori. So there's no homework to grade. Mm. Uh, You know, you you do some prep, but it's not like, I mean, my husband's a high school English teacher and he's just, the grading never ends. Um, so it, it fit really well with my plans, which included going to grad school in the summers, uh, fit in there too. But uh, I was writing short stories really that whole time, which of course, you know, I, I don't like it when people just use short stories as some kind of stepping stone and then leave them behind. But 
it's it's a great idea to become familiar with the short story form before you attempt a novel, if you want to. Otherwise, you know, dive right into the novel. But I was I was writing short stories. Uh, by my mid twenties, I was sending them out to journals a little bit, and I, I was lucky. I, I got some hits. I think in part because I'd really done my research. I, I really knew what kind of story might be a fit at what journal. And things got anthologized a bit, Best American Short Stories, stuff like that, which was huge, huge, huge for me. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I was poking at my first novel, which I, I didn't even call it a novel for the first four years or so. I just called it this longer thing I might be working on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then eventually stepped it up and went, okay, no, you know what? I'm writing a novel. All right. That was my first novel, The Borrower. Yeah, it was, it was well received. It was, you know, it did, it did very well for a debut. It was just, it was not a big splashy debut. It was just a solid debut. Mm. Uh, really uh, up until, you know, The Great Believers was my fourth book that won a lot of awards. And I was, I was absolutely thrilled. Be- prior to that, the only awards that any of my books won was sort of like a very local, kind of like a Chicago award for, for mm. my second novel. That was it. So, um, this, you know, it's, it's, it's not like I was a totally different writer on that fourth book. It's just that some things hit, some things don't. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of just one person really noticing a book and being loud about it. And that gets everyone else to notice it. It gets it read. Not everything gets read for every prize, you know? So, um, I, I will say, when I meet an author who was really successful out of the gates with their first novel, prizes, sales, whatever, mm-hmm. they might be a really nice person. But the thing I'm always thinking is you will, ne- you can, you can say you understand, but you'll never understand how much of this was luck. Mm. And for me, cause you know, that was my fourth book where that happened. And I absolutely know how much of it is luck. Interesting. Yeah. We, I was just talking about this uh, last week with another author, um, William Landay, and um, he's saying the exact same thing. Like he didn't feel there different. He did not feel any different um, writing Defending Jacob as he did the first two novels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, he just kind of felt like it had a, it just took kind of life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I did, I, I will say, I did feel a bit different writing The Great Believers. Um, it, I was just a much more mature writer. Um, my first two novels, so The Borrower and then The Hundred Year House was my second novel. Both of them took a very, very long time as novels do. And both of them I started in my 20s. Um, the Borrower, I started in my early 20s. Um, it was published when I was, I guess, 33 or something. The The Hundred Year House, I, I started in my mid-20s, abandoned it, came back to it. My short stories, you know, those have been written that whole time over like 15 years. Uh, The Great Believers, I started when I was something like 35. And I was just, you know, I started from a very different place. I started Mm -hmm. from a place of a lot more experience. Um, So it did feel different. But even so, (laughs) it is still just so much about luck. Yeah, yeah. Well, really interesting. Path to now, and of course... The Great Believers went on to become a finalist for the Pulitzer and National Book Awards and won quite a few awards as well, including the LA Times Book Prize. Mm-hmm. 
Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Here we are today, and and you're promoting, of course, I have some questions for you, um, which has been named a most anticipated book of 2023, like everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we're, we're calling it, a, uh, or it's been described by the San Francisco Chronicle, at least as a part true crime page turner, part campus coming of age, and uh, a, a, a novel that follows a film professor and podcaster forced to reckon with her past and reexamine the murder of her high school uh, classmate. How, how are you uh, describing the novel? Yeah, I am telling people it is a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. <laughs> it's funny when people describe it as true crime because it is fictional crime, but it does take, it does take the true crime industrial complex as one of its subjects. Um, it, it really digs in on why are we so into this? What, you know, for better or worse, what stories capture the public imagination? What does that do to those families, the case, et cetera? But basically, um, so yeah, we have a 40 year old woman who she's a, she's a film historian and she returns to the boarding school she attended. Um, she's 40. She, she'd attended the school in the 1990s. She gets, goes back to teach a two week class. And um, while she's there, her mind is very much on the past, including on the murder in her senior year of this girl, Thalia Keith, who had been her junior year roommate, although they weren't really friends. And someone is in prison for it. The case is solved. Um, A young black man who was the school's athletic trainer was arrested very quickly and has been in prison for over 20 years. There's a lot of noise online, though, 
of people saying um, that the wrong guy is in prison. And she starts to realize when she's back there walking around, um, she starts to realize that that actually might be the case. Very compelling, obviously. Um, It has been widely reviewed and and well-received. And uh, the New York Times called it spellbinding. I actually wanted to expand on that that little blur because I thought what they said was actually really cool. They, they called it a spellbinding work and noted that Mackay's prose is lean yet lush with short incantatory chapters and sentences as taut as piano wire. That was from the New York Times Book Review. I thought that was a pretty good one. It's pretty nice. I like it. Yeah, that's, that's good writing too. And uh, yeah, I thought that was cool that your peers came out, obviously, um, to praise it. And, and Jennifer Egan, Pulitzer Prize winning author, herself uh, called it, of course, part boarding school drama, part forensic who done it. Uh, I have some questions for you. Is it true literary mystery haunting and hard to put down? That was nice of her. Yes, it was very nice of her. Yeah. Um, you know, and th- those blurb things are th- that's like the night, like the, the every writer's pain in the ass is you go out <laughs> and you have to ask favors. And it's often people, you know, but especially early on, you don't know anybody. So it's, you know, people, your editor, your agent might reach out to. And um, it's, God, it's so hard to ask people. They're hard to write too. They're really hard to write. Uh, But, you know, if nothing else, when I look at a book, I look at the blurbs and it's partly like, you know, do they seem excited or is this like a, he sure has written a book kind of blurb, right? And then also who wrote the blurbs and this, it doesn't mean um, I'm not saying like, you know, how fancy are they, but more like what kind of writers are they, right? Like if a, if a book is blurbed by um, very book clubby type authors, that might mean one thing. And if it's blurbed by really like esoteric literary authors, that means something else. That's who you're kind of lining yourself up with. But you know, it's, it's tricky because it's like, it's partly like, well, how well connected is this person? Uh, which is not very fair, of course. <laughs> right. Well, I want to talk about, of course, um, a little bit more about the origins of I Have Some Questions For You, kind of where you were at as an author. Of course, you were coming off of the high of being lauded for um, your last novel, The Great Believers. And um, I understand that, you know, coming into the pandemic and trying to figure out what, what your next project was going to be, you were kind of toying with some ideas. And then um, you've also written at, at length about kind of how you come to decide on a setting and it being kind of a, a very underutilized tool in fiction. I wonder if you yeah. can when, kind of wend those two together because you have a very interesting kind of real life story yes. uh, about where you live. and, and Yeah, Right. Yeah. And I just, um, yeah, I just had a, an essay in LitHub about setting, uh, making use of setting. Setting is um, quite often where I start. Setting scenario plot. I know that there are writers who start with character. I am just not one of them. Um, and in terms of the setting here, you know, this is a boarding school novel. That's a thing that's out there. There are other boarding school novels. I think it's a setting that Either people want to read about because they did go to a boarding school or they want to read about because they didn't go to a boarding school. Um, It's just an intriguing setting. But yeah, I live on campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches. And I've lived here for like 20 years. I have no responsibilities here. I have nothing to do with the school. I never see these students. Uh, You know, we have our own entrance to the, we, we do live in an apartment that's attached to a dorm, but 
we have our own entrance. We have, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not what people might imagine in terms of kids knocking on the door or like the facts of life or whatever kind of thing. But, um, this, where this gets complicated is, um, so I'm from Chicago. I met my husband out East. I dragged him back to Chicago. He was already a high school teacher. This is where he got the job, but this is the high school I attended. Um, I was a day student. I was a scholarship day student at this wonderful boarding school. Um, and so I have lived on campus of my high school for my, most of my adult life. Um, I'm not the only person, you know, there, there are plenty of people who, uh, a lot of people who teach at boarding schools are alumni of those same schools, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not unheard of, but, and, and then of course the people who like live in a small town and never left and they drive past the high school every day on their way to work. But, uh, it, it, of course, is an unusual living situation. Um, it's not one that I particularly wrote about in here. I do have a character who's an alum who still teaches at the school. So we see that side of things. Um, but of course, you know, that's that kind of passage of time at one place, the boarding school world, those have been on my mind. And I was, you know, people would ask all the time, when are you going to write a boarding school novel? And I was, I was worried about doing that because I, I wanted it to be so clear that I wasn't writing about this school, these people, anyone I knew in high school. And of course, people will see themselves in anything if they want to, right? But, um, but I, I genuinely, you know, tried to make things as different as I possibly could. The, the school that I write about is set in New Hampshire. I made it a big ski school. We don't have ski schools in Chicago. <laughs> That's not a thing. Um, you know, just everything that I could do. But that setting, you know, was was really the main origin of the story. Like, I, I want to write a story that is set in a place like this. And I don't want to write a YA novel. That's not what I do. I want to write about an adult looking back. And if I write about an adult looking back, well, then this is going to be about a book about the fallibility of memory. It's going to be about trying to figure out what happened. And if we're looking back, trying to figure out what happened let's just make it a murder mystery. Let's just actually go there and do this. And uh, so that that's what we ended up with. Um, I thought it was interesting. And I think um, I'll just quote, I'm pretty sure this is a New Yorker review titled a novel that confronts our true crime obsession, which I will also link to. What distinguishes Mackay's turn is her detective framing. She understands that every high school with its indelible characters and astronomical seeming stakes is a crime scene. Childhood is a closed case. Remembering reopens it. I thought that was really interesting and it kind of resonated with, you know, as I was reading the book and also kind of the, the bigger discussion around it. Uh, yeah. I, I, and of course, you're you're talking about memory and its fa failures or fallibility that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of talk a little bit about that. What came to mind, I think also was just kind of that idea of being trapped in the present and looking back, as you noted, the, the, the right. um, protagonist is of course an adult and mm -hmm. you're using your prose to explore this idea. And I kind of, what came to mind was this, also this Kierkegaard quote, life can only be understood backwards, mm -hmm, <laughs> but it must mm -hmm. be lived forwards. Right. I think I kind of feel like that, that that's what you're talking about. And it, and obviously dovetails with a quite a few of the themes of, of your writing, but yeah, talk, talk a little bit more about that if you want to. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
uh, you know, thematically, my work is almost always interested in time, in the passage of time. And uh, in this particular case, that's, the, you know, the ways it intersects with memory and identity. Are we still the same person we were? You know, if you've changed this much, everyone else has changed this much too. So who are you mad at then if they don't really still exist? You know, the, how can you hold someone accountable if they're not still the same person? You know, you have a choice then structurally in a novel Am I going to jump back to the past and show you what actually happened? Um, and I didn't want to do that here because I, I had just done that with the great believers. I, I didn't want to do that again. Um, and the other option was I didn't like either. Uh, it tends to drive me nuts in fiction where someone has these crystal clear chronological 17 page memories, <laughs> you know, like I was sitting there peeling a hard boiled egg and I remembered here's, you know, every single little detail, like what the weather was like, who said what, what they were wearing. And memory doesn't work that way. And in fact, it's something we borrow from film. Um, film works that way. Books didn't used to do that until film did that. And it's not accurate. It's not truthful. It's not the way memory works. Um, so I really wanted to, you know, trap her, as you said, trap her in the present, trap the reader in the present, trying to look back trying to figure out what was accurate. What did I remember? Well, what did I misunderstand at the time? Someone else remembers something really differently than I do. Uh, and let's, you know, let's actually make that, you know, thematic. It's not just this, this weird hoop I have to jump through to write a book that doesn't do that weird thing with, you know, the filmic version of memory, but let, you know, why don't I actually take this as a topic of my book? Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Um, and I, I mean, I'd love to pick, I could probably pick your brain all day. I know we have limited time here. So yeah, just to talk about a little bit about the research piece and then obviously um, kind of your process as a writer, I'd mm -hmm. love to um, explore a little bit how, about how you, when the two together, when do you decide, okay, I'm done researching, I'm ready to start getting pages and what is your mm -hmm. kind of your, your best day as a writer? What does that kind of look mm, and smell, okay. like, smell like? Yeah, you know? no, so with research, I mean, there's there's sort of a, a lot of lay of the land research that you often need to do first. So for instance, with the great believers, I needed to read a ton about the AIDS epidemic. I needed to do a lot of interviews with people where it was specific to Chicago before I could even start writing. Um, but I, I knew that I couldn't wait too long or I'd, I'd never stop re researching. Right. In this case, um, it was early on, it was really just a little bit of legal research of, you know, what, you know, what would need to happen in order for a case to get reopened, for instance. Um, and then, you know, just start writing and know that I'll come back to those things later. And so it was, it was fairly late in the process. Um, the, the biggest thing here was legal research, the New Hampshire legal system, the New Hampshire carceral system. Um, and I ended up uh, working a lot with this woman who, who was a public defender in New Hampshire, who was able to just, you know, answer all my questions, read stuff, give me ideas for, you know, the kind of thing that happened. So I'm hugely grateful for that. We, this is all pandemic and we were Zooming and I finally got to meet her in person at the beginning of this tour, which was great. And, you know, yeah, my, my, uh, you said best writing day, I mean, would probably be when I'm, you know, doing an artist residency somewhere. This book was started at the Ragdale Foundation near Chicago, where I, you know, just had three weeks to do nothing but dive in and work. Uh, so, you know, one of my favorite things about that is being able to just kind of wake up 
on my own late, grab my computer and just start working from bed um, while I'm still kind of in that liminal sleep zone uh, and take breaks, go for walks, come back, write, and really not have other things I need to do. Um, but that happens rarely, you know, maybe haven't done a uh, residency actually since before the pandemic and uh, have one lined up for this fall. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, talk like briefly, if you will, about the uh, Guggenheim Fellowship. And um, I understand that you're, you know, you're also uh, kind of an educator. You're, you're an MFA faculty for University of Nevada, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm on the MFA faculties at Northwestern University. And then it's actually the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe. It's their, it's our low residency MFA program. So if anyone out there is looking for an MFA, you just get to go to Lake Tahoe for one week in January and one week in July, and you get to keep your normal life in the meantime. It's really great. But my main gig is that I'm artistic director at Story Studio Chicago, um, which is a nonprofit writing center similar to Grove Street or Hugo House, if you know those. And uh, yeah, no, so I, I do a lot of education. I, I do a lot of that stuff. Uh, I keep very, very busy. Um, you asked about the Guggenheim, which is a totally different thing. That's that's just, you know, that happened last year. It's a wonderful grant um, and is allowing me to do research abroad a little bit for my next book. Very cool. Um, can you say any about what you're working on next or... Um... Yeah, no, I can say what, I, what I've been saying. Like I, I, you know, I traveled to Germany uh, this last fall with that Guggenheim and I'm doing some research into it's, it's 1930s Germany. It is not a Holocaust novel and it's not a World War II novel, um, but uh, certainly um, concerns some of those things. And uh, that's, you know, that's how I'm, that's where I'm doing my research and I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that for now. Well, um, I obviously could pick your brain all day about writing and the writing life. We've got a couple minutes left here. I'd love to give you a fun one. I know this is one you probably gotten, but uh, yeah, if you could have any writer from any era uh, to an all expense paid dinner or drinks mm -hmm. to your favorite, favorite spot mm -hmm. in the world, who would you pick and where would you take them? Mm, interesting. Well, I'm going to pick something different than I did last time. I, I did the, um, the, by the book interview for the times and they asked yeah. the dinner party, they asked three. And I, what I said there was, Vladimir Nabokov, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Lois Lowry, which would be a very mm -hmm. strange party. Um, but uh, yeah, any author from any period in time. I have this weird thing about really wanting to go back in time and give Marcel Proust my asthma inhaler. <laughs> this is so weird. But like, he, this poor dude, he just like, he suffered so much from asthma. And, and he like, just lay in bed the whole time and he was like, couldn't breathe and I relate, but like, at least I have these inhalers. So I think what I would do is I would, I would go on some weird cruise somewhere with, with, uh, Marcel Proust and, uh, I would just give him all of my, my, uh, inhalers and steroids and, and he'd feel good and we'd see what he'd write that would be really different than what he wrote lying in bed. <laughs> <laughs> weird cruise, steroids. What would you what would you drink or eat? <laughs> you know, uh, well, he needs to feel, well, here's the thing. We're, okay. I take this too literally. We're dealing with Marcel Proust. Let's blow his mind by giving him like Cheetos or something. Like let, what would happen? <laughs> um, you know, we can, we'll drink some good cocktails, but like, let's, you know, what would yeah. he do with like pizza? Let's find out. <laughs> I love it. Pizza with Proust on the <laughs> prow. Yeah. 
your last kind of pearl of wisdom for for fellow riders. I know you got to run. No, let's see. Um, I will say uh, this is the I could elaborate, but I'm going to keep it short. So this is going to be sort of a, a Zen koan here. But when you are looking at the central problem of writing, whatever you're writing, like I can't do this because um, and for me, the example would be like, well, how am I going to write about memory when when memory doesn't work that way? Um, rather than trying to solve your problem, right? Rather than trying to avoid the issue, write about the issue. Make it a topic, make it a theme, put it in the book in some way. And I've solved a lot of my own problems that way. Beautiful, beautiful way to end. Thank you so much. I know you got to run. Um, we appreciate you and come back in the future. Thank you so much. I first watched the video in 2016. I was in bed on my laptop with headphones, worried Jerome would wake up and I'd have to explain. Down the hall, my children slept. I could have gone and checked on them, felt their warm cheeks and hot breath. I could have smelled my daughter's hair, and maybe the scent of damp lavender and a toddler's scalp would have been enough to send me to sleep. But a friend I hadn't seen in 20 years had just sent me the link, and so I clicked. Lerner and Lowe's Camelot. I was both stage manager and tech director. One fixed camera, too close to the orchestra, too far from the unmiked adolescent singers, 1995 VHS quality, some member of the AV club behind the lens. And my God, we knew we weren't great, but we weren't even as good as we thought we were. Whoever uploaded it two decades later, whoever added the notes below with the exact time markers for when Thalia Keith shows up, had also posted the list of cast and crew. Beth Dougherty as a petite Guinevere, Sakina John glowing as Morgan Le Fay with a crown of gold spikes atop her cornrows, Mike Stiles, beautiful and embarrassed as King Arthur. My name is misspelled, but it's there too. The curtain call is the last shot where you clearly see Thalia, her dark curls distinguishing her from the washed-out mass. Then, most everyone stays on stage to sing Happy Birthday to Mrs. Ross, our director, to pull her up from the front row where she sat every night jotting notes. She's so young, something I hadn't registered then. A few kids exit, return in confusion, Orchestra members hop on stage to sing. Mrs. Ross's husband springs from the audience with flowers. The crew comes on in black shirts and black jeans. I don't appear. I assume I stayed up in the box. It would have been like me to sit it out. Including the regrouping and singing, the birthday business lasts 52 seconds, during which you never see Thalia clearly. In the comments, someone had zoomed in on a bit of green dress at one side of the frame, posted side-by-side -side photos of that smear of color and the dress Thalia wore, first covered in gauze as Nimue, the enchantress, the lady of the lake, and then ungauzed with a simple headdress as Lady Anne. But there were several green dresses. My friend Carlotta's was one. There's a chance that, by then, Thalia was gone. Most of the discussion below the video focused on timing. The show was set to begin at 7 o'clock, but we likely started our mercifully abridged version five minutes late, maybe more. 
The tape omitted intermission, and there was speculation on how long the intermission of a high school musical would last. Depending on what you believe about these two variables, the show ended sometime between 8.45 and 9.15. I should have known. Once, there would have been a binder with my meticulous notes. But no one ever asked for it. The window the medical examiner allowed for Thalia's time of death was 8 p.m. to midnight, with the beginning of the slot curtailed by the musical, the reason the show's exact end time had become the subject of infinite fascination online. I came here from YouTube, one commenter had written in 2015, linking to a separate video. Watch this. It proves they bungled the case. The timeline makes no sense. Someone else wrote, Wrong guy in prison because of racist cops in school's pocket. And below that, Welcome to Tinfoil Hat Central. Focus your energies on an actual unsolved case. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.